Section nine of Tanglewood Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Ferguson. Tanglewood Tales by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Circe's Palace, Part One. Some of you have heard, no doubt, of the wise King Ulysses, and how he went to the siege of Troy, and how, after that famous city was taken and burned, he spent ten long years in trying to get back again to his own little kingdom of Ithaca. At one time in the course of this weary voyage he arrived at an island that looked very green and pleasant, but the name of which was unknown to him. For, only a little while before he came thither, he had met with a terrible hurricane, or rather a great many hurricanes at once, which drove his fleet of vessels into a strange part of the sea, where neither himself nor any of his mariners had ever sailed. This misfortune was entirely owing to the foolish curiosity of his shipmates, who, while Ulysses lay asleep, had untied some very bulky leathern bags, in which they supposed a valuable treasure to be concealed. But in each of these stout bags, King Aeolus, the ruler of the winds, had tied up a tempest, and had given it to Ulysses to keep in order that he might be sure of a favourable passage homeward to Ithaca. And when the strings were loosened, forth rushed the whistling blasts, like air out of the blown bladder, whitening the sea with foam and scattering the vessels nobody could tell whither. Immediately after escaping from this peril, a still greater one had befallen him. Scudding before the hurricane, he reached a place which, as he afterwards found, was called Lestrigonia, where some monstrous giants had eaten up many of his companions, and had sunk every one of his vessels, except that in which he himself sailed, by flinging great masses of rock at them from the cliffs along the shore. After going through such troubles as these, you cannot wonder that King Ulysses was glad to moor his tempest-beaten bark in a quiet cove of the green island, which I began with telling you about. But he had encountered so many dangers from giants, and one-eyed cyclopses, and monsters of the sea and land, that he could not help dreading some mischief, even in this pleasant and seemingly solitary spot. For two days, therefore, the poor weather-worn voyagers kept quiet, and either stayed on board of the vessel, or merely crept along under the cliffs that bordered the shore and to keep themselves alive they dug shellfish out of the sand, and sought for any little rill of fresh water that might be running toward the sea. Before the two days were spent they grew very weary of this kind of life, for the followers of King Ulysses, as you will find it important to remember, were terrible gormandizers, and pretty sure to grumble if they missed their regular meals, and their irregular ones besides. Their stock of provisions was quite exhausted, and even the shellfish began to get scarce, so that they had now to choose between starving to death or venturing into the interior of the island, where perhaps some huge three-headed dragon or other horrible monster had his den. Such mishappen creatures were very numerous in those days, and nobody ever expected to make a voyage or take a journey without running more or less risk of being devoured by them. But King Ulysses was a bold man as well as a prudent one, and on the third morning he determined to discover what sort of place the island was, and whether it were possible to obtain a supply of food for the hungry mouths of his companions. So taking a spear in his hand, he clambered to the summit of the cliff and gazed round about him. 
At a distance, towards the centre of the island, he beheld the stately towers of what seemed to be a palace, built of snow-white marble, and rising in the midst of a grove of lofty trees. The thick branches of these trees stretched across the front of the edifice, and more than half concealed it, although from the portion which he saw Ulysses judged it to be spacious and exceedingly beautiful, and probably the residence of some great nobleman or prince. A blue smoke went curling up from the chimney, and it was almost the pleasantest part of the spectacle to Ulysses, for, from the abundance of this smoke, it was reasonable to conclude that there was a good fire in the kitchen, and that, at dinner-time, a plentiful banquet would be served up to the inhabitants of the palace, and to whatever guests might happen to drop in. With so agreeable a prospect before him, Ulysses fancied that he could not do better than go straight to the palace gate, and tell the master of it that there was a crew of poor shipwrecked mariners not far off, who had eaten nothing for a day or two save a few clams and oysters, and would therefore be thankful for a little food. And the prince or nobleman must be a very stingy curmudgeon, to be sure, if at least when his own dinner was over he would not bid them welcome to the broken victuals of the table. Pleasing himself with this idea, King Ulysses had made a few steps in the direction of the palace, when there was a great twittering and chirping from the branch of a neighbouring tree. A moment afterwards a bird came flying towards him and hovered in the air, so as almost to brush his face with its wings. It was a very pretty little bird, with purple wings and body, and yellow legs, and a circle of golden feathers round its neck, and on its head a golden tuft, which looked like a king's crown in miniature. Ulysses tried to catch the bird, but it fluttered nimbly out of his reach, still chirping in a piteous tone, as if it could have told a lamentable story, had it only been gifted with human language. And when he attempted to drive it away, the bird flew no farther than the bough of the next tree, and again came fluttering about his head with its doleful chirp as soon as he showed a purpose of going forward. "'Have you anything to tell me, little bird?' asked Ulysses. And he was ready to listen attentively to whatever the bird might communicate, for, at the siege of Troy and elsewhere, he had known such odd things to happen that he would not have considered it much out of the common run had this little feathered creature talked as plainly as himself." said the bird, peep, 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 weep, and nothing else would it say, but only, peep, 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 weep, in a melancholy cadence, and over and over and over again. As often as Ulysses moved forward, however, the bird showed the greatest alarm, and did its best to drive him back, with the anxious flutter of its purple wings. Its unaccountable behaviour made him conclude, at last, that the bird knew of some danger that awaited him, and which must needs be very terrible, beyond all question, since it moved even a little fowl to feel compassion for a human being. So he resolved, for the present, to return to the vessel and tell his companions what he had seen. This appeared to satisfy the bird. As soon as Ulysses turned back, it ran up the trunk of a tree, and began to pick insects out of the bark with its long, sharp bill, for it was a kind of woodpecker, you must know, and had to get its living in the same manner as other birds of that species. But every little while, as it pecked at the bark of the tree, the purple bird bethought itself of some secret sorrow, and repeated its plaintive note of, Peep, peep, pee-wee. On his way to the shore, Ulysses had the good luck, to kill a large stag by thrusting his spear into his back. Taking it on his shoulders, for he was a remarkably strong man, he lugged it along with him, 
and flung it down before his hungry companions. I have already hinted to you what gormandises some of the comrades of King Ulysses were, for what is related of them, I reckon, that their favourite diet was pork, and that they had lived upon it until a good part of their physical substance was swine's flesh, and their tempers and dispositions were very much akin to the hog. A dish of venison, however, was no unacceptable meal to them, especially after feeding so long on oysters and clams. So, beholding the dead stag, they felt of its ribs in a knowing way, and lost no time in kindling a fire of driftwood to cook it. The rest of the day was spent in feasting, and if these enormous eaters got up from the table at sunset, it was only because they could not scrape another morsel off the poor animal's bones. The next morning their appetites were as sharp as ever. They looked at Ulysses, as if they expected him to clamber up the cliff again, and come back with another fat deer upon his shoulders. Instead of setting out, however, he summoned the whole crew together, and told them it was in vain to hope that he could kill a stag every day for their dinner, and therefore it was advisable to think of some other mode of satisfying their hunger. "'Now,' said he, "'when I was on the cliff yesterday, I discovered that this island is inhabited. At a considerable distance from the shore stood a marble palace, which appeared to be very spacious, and had a great deal of smoke curling out of one of its chimneys. "'Aha!' muttered some of his companions, smacking their lips. "'That smoke must have come from the kitchen fire.' There was a good dinner on the spit, and no doubt there will be as good a one to-day. But, continued the wise Ulysses, you must remember, my good friends, our misadventure in the cavern of one-eyed Polyphemus, the Cyclops. Instead of his ordinary monk diet, did he not eat up two of our comrades for his supper, and a couple more for breakfast, and two at his supper again? Methinks I see him yet, the hideous monster, scanning us with that great red eye in the middle of his forehead, to single out the fattest. And then again, only a few days ago, did we not fall into the hands of the king of Lestrigones, and those other horrible giants, his subjects, who devoured a great many more of us than are now left? To tell you the truth, if we go to the yonder palace there can be no question that we shall make our appearance at the dinner-table, but whether seated as guests, or served up as food, is a point to be seriously considered. "'Either way,' murmured some of the hungriest of the crew, "'it will be better than starvation, particularly if one could be sure of being well fattened beforehand and daintily cooked afterwards.' "'That is a matter of taste,' said King Ulysses. "'And for my own part, neither the most careful fattening nor the daintiest of cookery would reconcile me to being dished at last.' My proposal is, therefore, that we divide ourselves into two equal parties, and ascertain, by drawing lots, which of the two shall go to the palace and beg for food and assistance. If these can be attained, all is well. If not, and the inhabitants prove as inhospitable as the Polyphemus, or the Lestrigones, then there will be but half of us perish, and the remainder may set sail and escape. As nobody objected to this scheme, Ulysses proceeded to count the whole band, and found that there were forty-six men, including himself. He then numbered off twenty-two of them, and put Eurylochus, who was one of his chief officers and second only to himself in sagacity, at their head. Ulysses took command of the remaining twenty-two men in person. Then taking off his helmet he put two shells into it, one on which was written Go, and on the other Stay. Another person now held the helmet, while Ulysses and Eurylochus drew out a shell, 
and the word go was found written on that which Eurylochus had drawn. In this manner it was decided that Ulysses and his twenty-two men were to remain at the seaside until the other party should have found out what sort of treatment they might expect at the mysterious palace. As there was no help for it, Eurylochus immediately set forth at the head of his twenty-two followers, who went off in a very melancholy state of mind, leaving their friends in hardly better spirits than themselves. No sooner had they clambered up the cliff than they discerned the tall marble towers of the palace, ascending as white as snow, out of the lovely green shadow of the trees which surrounded it. A gush of smoke came from a chimney in the rear of the edifice. This vapour rose high in the air, and meeting with a breeze, was wafted seaward and made to pass over the heads of the hungry mariners. When people's appetites are keen, they have a very quick scent for anything savoury in the wind. "'That smoke comes from the kitchen,' cried one of them, turning up his nose as high as he could and snuffing eagerly. "'And as sure as I'm a half-starved vagabond, I smell roast meat in it.' "'Pig! Roast pig!' said another. "'Ah, the dainty little porker! My mouth waters for him!' "'Let us make haste,' cried the others, "'or we shall be too late for the good cheer.' But scarcely had they made half a dozen steps from the edge of the cliff when a bird came fluttering to meet them. It was the same pretty little bird, with the purple wings and body, the yellow legs, the golden collar round its neck, and the crown-like tuft upon its head, whose behaviour had so much surprised Ulysses. It hovered about Eurylochus and almost brushed his face with its wings. "'Peep, peep, peep,' chirped the bird. So plaintively intelligent was the sound, that it seemed as if the little creature were going to break its heart with some mighty secret that it had to tell, and only this one poor note to tell it with. "'My pretty bird,' said Eurylochus, for he was a wary person and let no token of harm escape his notice, "'my pretty bird, who sent you hither, and what is the message which you bring?' "'Peep, peep, peep,' replied the bird very sorrowfully. Then it flew towards the edge of the cliff, and looked around at them, as if exceedingly anxious that they should return whence they came. Eurylochus and a few of the others were inclined to turn back. They could not help suspecting that the purple bird must be aware of something mischievous that would befall them at the palace, and the knowledge of which affected its airy spirit with a human sympathy and sorrow. But the rest of the voyagers, snuffing up the smoke from the palace kitchen, ridiculed the idea of returning to the vessel. One of them, more brutal than his fellows, and the most notorious gormandizer in the crew, said such a cruel and wicked thing, that I wonder the mere thought did not turn him into a wild beast in shape, as he already was in his nature. "'This troublesome and impertinent little fowl,' said he, "'would make a delicate titbit to begin dinner with. Just one plump morsel melting away between the teeth.' If he comes within my reach, I'll catch him and give him to the palace cook to be roasted on a skewer. The words were hardly out of his mouth before the purple bird flew away, crying, Peep, 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 more dolorously than ever. That bird, remarked Eurylochus, knows more than we do about what awaits us at the palace. Come on, then, cried his comrades, and we'll soon know as much as he does. The party, accordingly, went onward through the green and pleasant wood. Every little while they caught new glimpses of the marble palace, which looked more and more beautiful the nearer they approached it. 
They soon entered a broad pathway which seemed very neatly kept, and which went winding along with streaks of sunshine falling across it, and specks of light quivering amongst the deepest shadows that fell from the lofty trees. It was bordered, too, with a great many sweet-smelling flowers, such as the mariners had never seen before. So rich and beautiful they were, that if the shrubs grew wild here, and were native in the soil, then this island was surely the flower-garden of the whole earth, or, if transplanted from some other clime, it must have been from the happy islands that lay towards the golden sunset. "'There has been a great deal of pains foolishly wasted on these flowers,' observed one of the company, "'and I tell you what he said, that you may keep in mind what gormandizers they were. For my part, if I were the owner of the palace, I would bid my gardener cultivate nothing but savoury pot-herbs to make a stuffing for roast meat, or to flavour a stew with.' "'Well said!' cried the others. "'But I'll warrant you there's a kitchen-garden in the rear of the palace.' At one place they came to a crystal spring, and paused to drink at it, for want of liquor which they liked better. Looking into its bosom, they beheld their own faces dimly reflected, but so extravagantly distorted by the gush and motion of the water, that each one of them appeared to be laughing at himself and all his companions. So ridiculous were these images of themselves, indeed, that they did really laugh aloud, and could hardly be grave again as soon as they wished. And after they had drank, they grew still merrier than before. "'It has a twang of the wine-cask in it,' said one, smacking his lips. "'Make haste,' cried his fellows. "'We'll find the wine-cask itself at the palace, and that will be better than a hundred crystal fountains.' Then they quickened their pace, and capered for joy at the thought of the savoury banquet at which they hoped to be guests. But Eurylochus told them that he felt as if he were walking in a dream. "'If I am really awake,' he continued, "'then in my opinion we are on the point of meeting with some stranger adventure than any that befell us in the cave of the Polyphemus, or among the gigantic man-eating Lestrigones, or in the windy palace of King Ilus, which stands on a brazen-walled island.' This kind of dreamy feeling always comes over me before any wonderful occurrence. If you take my advice, you will turn back. No, no, answered his comrades, snuffing the air, in which the scent from the palace kitchen was now very perceptible. We would not turn back, though we were certain that the king of Lestrigones, as big as a mountain, would sit at the head of the table, and huge Polyphemus, the one-eyed Cyclops, at its foot. At length they came within full sight of the palace which proved to be very large and lofty, with a great number of airy pinnacles upon its roof. Though it was midday, and the sun shone brightly over the marble front, yet its snowy whiteness and its fantastic style of architecture made it look unreal, like the frosty work on a window-pane, or like the shapes of castles which one sees among the clouds by moonlight. But just then a puff of wind brought down the smoke of the kitchen chimney among them, and caused each man to smell the odour of the dish that he liked best, and after scenting it they thought everything else moonshine, and nothing real save this palace and save the banquet that was evidently ready to be served up in it. So they hastened their steps towards the portal, but had not got halfway across the wide lawn when a pack of lions, tigers, and wolves came bounding to meet them. The terrified mariners started back, expecting no better fate than to be torn to pieces and devoured. To their surprise, and joy, however, these wild beasts merely capered around them, wagging their tails, offering their heads to be stroked and patted, 
behaving just like so many well-bred house-dogs, when they wished to express their delight at meeting their master, or their master's friends. The biggest lion licked the feet of Eurylochus, and every other lion and every wolf and tiger singled out one of his two and twenty followers, whom the beast fondled as if he loved him better than a beef-bone. But for all that, Eurylochus imagined that he saw something fierce and savage in their eyes, nor would he have been surprised at any moment to feel the big lion's terrible claws, or to see each of the tigers make a deadly spring, or each wolf leap at the throat of the man whom he had fondled. Their mildness seemed unreal, and a mere freak, but their savage nature was as true as their teeth and claws. Nevertheless, the men went safely across the lawn with the wild beasts frisking about them, and doing no manner of harm, although, as they mounted the steps of the palace, you might possibly have heard a low growl, particularly from the wolves, as if they thought it a pity, after all, to let the strangers pass without so much as tasting what they were made of. End of Part 1 of Circe's Palace Recording by Linda Ferguson